Welcome to The Network, our attempt at creating a modern podcast version of the Negro Motorist Green Book. If you don't know anything about the Green Book, I invite you to Google it. With each interview, we are building a network of talented professionals that you can reach out and touch. Every episode is an invaluable resource for black people living in and traveling through America. Subscribe to The Network. You may need it. Today's guest is Akira LeBlanc. Akira is an administrator, educational consultant, and newly minted author of the book titled The Seven Traits of Talented Teachers. You can find her book on Amazon where it's available in print or as an ebook. Akira, Hi. welcome to the network. Tell us about yourself. Hello, I am so glad to be here with you on today. Um, I guess just to talk a little bit about myself, my journey, like many people's, be begins in my childhood. Um, and I, as a child, went through a lot of things and met some teachers along the way, starting with kindergarten for me. Um, and those teachers that I met, while there were only a handful across the course of my K through 12 life, um, were extremely impacting. Um, to who I would become, branching from my kindergarten years to later on in my high school years and the educators that I met then. And pretty much for me, once kindergarten was over, I knew that I wanted to be a teacher. And so I locked that into my head at that time as my career path for the rest of my life. And I started training for that um, in my bedroom with my imaginary students, uh, setting up the... <laughs> setting up the students on my bed with the paperwork, you know, and everything, and just really, uh, you know, imagine my way into education, um, just absolutely knowing what I wanted kids to be able to experience in, in education. And so those teachers that I met along the way, which, you know, I talk a bit about in the book, The Seven Traits, those teachers helped me to shape the kind of educator that I wanted to become. So I had the raw passion, you know, and that kind of thing, but they served unknowingly. Um, in most cases, they served as models for me of who I would ultimately uh, become as an educator. Now, also a good part of my educational journey, I, I would say a big part of my educational journey is the fact that I was the teenage mom. I had both of my sons before I was 20 years old. Um, and, knowing that I wanted to be an educator already, you know, going into that part of my life, I knew that they were going to be my first students. And I knew that I was going to have the opportunity to learn how to be a teacher with them, you know, with real human beings, right? Um, and so I knew, I, I've always said the, the largest parts of my identity are me as a mother and me as an educator those are the hugest parts uh, of my identity. And so for me, I got to actually, you know, be a great mom and be a great educator with my kids and also learn what children need in order to feel loved, to be ready to learn along the way. So, you know, that kind of paints the road um, to what led to me as an educator and the passionate educator and advocate that, that I am today. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, you, you already mentioned um, 
you knew in kindergarten that you wanted to be a teacher. I thought that was so interesting. Um, as I was reading through your questionnaire, um, talk about how, <laughs> this is funny to me, um, your mom gave you homework. Yes, she did. Your mom gave you homework that, that, <laughs> that kind of led, uh, that kind of helped fuel that passion as well. Talk about that a little bit. It did. So my mom, bless her soul, Janelle Johnson, um, my mom during the summer. So, you know, for a lot of us of our generation, we were latchkey kids, right? Which of course right. we didn't know that term until, <laughs> until we didn't know they had a name for us. But, you know, I was home often, right? Alone, right? As a young person. And so during the summertime, uh, for as long as I can remember, my mom used to order these comprehension, reading comprehension kits, not a book, not, not, not a sheet. She used to order the whole kit, you know? Yeah. And so she would always give me, uh, okay, you have to get from, you know, A to C done um, within today. You know, by the time I get home from work, because my parents were always working during the daytime and they built me home in the evening. By the time I get home from work, um, you know, I want to be able to see that you've completed, you know, sections A through C or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I hated it. I despised it, you know, to the core. I was like, how could she do this to me every summer of my childhood? But what I did was I formulated what, what I thought was a, a strategic plan, you know, to get over uh, on her. And so I said to myself, well, she thinks I'm going to do A through C, you know, on today, I'm going to through do A through H, so I don't have to do work for the rest of the week. I went from despising, you know, the idea of sitting down reading and, you know, answering questions to it being something that I became inherently good at, right? I became really good mm -hmm. at reading and not just reading, but reading between the lines. And when you really become good at something, and you know, I would always tell my kids this and, and my students this, when you really become a master of something, it becomes difficult for you to make a mistake at it. Mm -hmm. Someone can mm -hmm. tell you, I want you to do it wrong. And you struggle, you know, to do it wrong because it's so much a part of you to do it quote unquote right or to do it you know in a strong way and so that's how that's what reading and writing um became for me is they became personal strengths for me and then they became passions because as i, I go back to those educators as i met those educators along the way they then helped to refine that passion and taught me okay now here's why we use reading and writing, particularly within the realm of, you know, our African-American culture, right? Mm -hmm. Here's why we need reading and writing. We have to educate ourselves because there is a war going on around you. You might, you might not see it, you know, all the time, but there's a war that's happening around you. You are being challenged and you don't even know it yet as a child. And so what we need you to do now is to take that gift that you have and to use it to educate yourself, to empower yourself, right? To enhance your intelligence, to widen your perspective along the way. And then we need you to be able to write so that you can have a voice, so that you can speak to the things that are happening. 
So the reading gives you the wherewithal, gives you the knowledge, right? Gives you what you need in order to be able to have that ammunition to fire back, you know, when you need to, right? Or simply to educate when you need to. But the writing then gives us the voice to be able to speak to it um, in clear, cohesive terms that everyone can understand, whether that person, you know, is highly educated or not. Um, something stood out, and, and I'm just wondering about it. You you were in Hawaii. Yes. Yes. Talk I, about that a little bit. How, how'd you end up in Hawaii? So I am a proud graduate of University of Hawaii. In the four years um, that we were there, I absolutely knew that that was my my soul home. Like I knew it. I call that my, my soul home, my home of, uh, you know, just restoration. So I like to say I have three homes. I have New Orleans, which is my birth home. And, you know, okay. I always say my home of culture. You know, I have obviously Houston, Texas, which I look at as my home of personal and professional development. Um, I, I made a lot of personal and professional gains, you know, throughout my time in Houston, Texas. Um, Look, I have a network, you know, in in Houston, Texas. Um, And that's a blessing, you know, to have. And and I would love to believe that I always have that. And then Hawaii is my soul home. And so that, that is where I'll, I'll be in Hawaii, ultimately living out, you know, the rest of my days or whatever, when that time comes, but definitely, um, yeah, so that's, that's where Hawaii comes from. And I, I did actually graduate from University of Hawaii. Um, okay, so what was it? Was there a chain of events? Was there an epiphany? Was there a whisper that said, Akira, it's time to write this book? So yes, it wasn't an epiphany. I, I knew that's also one of the other things since I was young, I knew I was going to be writing books and I say writing Mm -hmm. books because I know I have many many more um, Mm -hmm. inside Mm -hmm. of me this is the first so I always knew that I would write books it's a part of it has always been a part of my long-term goal um, to do it Um, when I knew it was time was about six years ago when I knew it was time Um, when I heard you know in my spirit okay it's time And I took some time and, you know, I started writing and everything. And then a battle, an internal battle occurred. Um, And it occurred for about six years. Uh, And that internal battle had a lot to do with who I was as an educator. Um, I don't share a lot of people's, a lot of educators' first year in education story. So a lot of people talk about, you know, their first year was like crazy, disastrous, you know, whatever, wild, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And that was not my first year. I, I had taught so long, you know, imaginary taught so long. um, And I had kids already, um, you know, at practice had already did motherhood. And I knew I knew exactly, you know, in my first year, what it should look like. In fact, before my first year, I had already had opportunities to uh, unofficially off the record, we'll keep all names closed and confidential, but I was already teaching um, prior to even finishing my bachelor's degree. Um, And so, you know, I had already, 
I already had all the practice to come along with it. Well, I said all that to say that I was embarrassed that I didn't have the story that other people had when we went to PDs and people, you know, and the presenter would say, talk about what your first year was like. And everybody was like, Oh my God, I was never. And I just was like, let me be quiet, <laughs> you know, whatever, because that wasn't the experience I had. And so it made it difficult to think about, cause I'm a writer, right. And I know plot and I know books and it made it difficult to frame. Well, how do I even do this? Because you know, I can't say this is how my first year was. No one will, people won't identify, you know, with that. And it won't sound real. And, you know, and so I battled a lot with myself about sharing, you know, sharing my story because I'm a believer in things being authentic. Um, and I just felt like, you know, oh my God, if I say this, it's not going to ring as authentic. People will be like, oh my God, you know, this is not real. And, and so I battle with that a lot also, and this is something that it took me a while to, to get to, um, another part of not heeding that word, even though I was writing, I was writing, I had chapters on chapters on chapters, you know, of writing, but would never move forward with the publishing part. Because another thing is I kept, and this may sound a little weird, but I kept, um, so writing is personal right? It's very personal. Okay. Uh -huh. And it's, and to do it requires you putting yourself first. And knowing that I was act and that I am actively in education. Um, and I gave my all to my classes, to my students, um, 20, you know, I would always say I'm your 24 seven teacher, you know, whatever. It was always, I can't do this right now because I'm in the work right now. I'm doing this work right now. And then I just would hear God saying to me, yeah, you're in the work, but you also have to find balance. You have to find the time where you put yourself first and get this yeah. done because when you get this done, you're going to have a wider, greater impact. And that was hard for me to fathom. I would be blessed a lot more and I don't mean financially um but just blessings in general as a human you know whatever way we can be blessed whether that's through our mm -hmm. kids or health or whatever it is but that my blessings would would windfall if I did this thing you know that God told me to do and if I put myself first instead of putting the work first put myself first in terms of the writing which is the work right yeah. And I, I just did it. I said, I'm going to do it. And then the pandemic came, you know, which was odd. Cause I was like, okay, now I've done it. God isn't even relevant now, you know, whatever, now that I've done it. And, um, and I, I just thank God because since the time it's been published, um, it's definitely, you know, blessings on blessings for real. And the relevance part that I concerned myself with. I've had so many educators to this point, you know, where I was worried about, oh, are they going to be able to use this now? We're not in the classroom anymore, you know, whatever. Yeah. I've had individuals, you know, say, no, this is it. This is, you know, this, this is what I needed, you know, kind of thing. And of course, that's, that's affirming, you know, just hearing those yeah. words and knowing, oh, okay. All right. I did what I was supposed to do. You, you was right, God. You was right, daddy. You know, that's what I right. did. So. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I think just personally, this this is my personal insight. Your impact has to be multiplied. 
So oftentimes putting ourselves first for those of us in, who are in education, it's counterintuitive. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> you know, I mean, the work is always being done. There are no days off, right. you know, because they need the, the ones that we serve, the children, the families, the parents that we serve, they, they, they need, you right. know, so we find ourselves often to, to be fountains and to have to shut the fountain off. Oof. And, right. and really, so this is, this is probably the best way I can say it. So I got some work done in my backyard um, a couple of years ago. And I have sprinklers back there. But in order to do the work, they had to reroute. Okay, okay. So we had to turn the water off so that they can dig up and reroute the sprinklers so that we could do something new. So I think maybe perhaps just in case, that's what God was doing. He was like, yeah. huh, it's not, I'm not shutting you down. I just, we got to reroute some things so this impact can be multiplied. Because your passion is easy to see. It's easy to hear. It's easy to feel. So let's talk about that. Let's, let's keep going there because I know the book is directly related to your why, to your passion. Weave your journey for us. Tell us, you know, the experiences that have gotten you to where you are now. And you've already talked about those things, but just, just keep going. Yeah. So, you know, I'll talk a little bit actually about the educators who inspired um, this, this particular work. Um, okay. And, you know, I talk about my kindergarten teacher, Miss Francois, and Miss Francois was the first one to shape in my mind, I would even say imprinted on me, upon me, what a teacher is, right? So when someone imprints on you, that's the first thing you know. And so you kind of mm -hmm. think, oh, well, this is what it is you know, th this is what it's supposed to be kind of thing. When everyone else was taking a nap, she would spend time with me and she would speak words of empowerment into me. I mean, she would, however long nap time was, I don't know if it was 30 minutes or two hours, but she yeah. would use that time and she would pull me close to her, you know, whatever. And she just would say things, she planted seeds in me. I mean, she just would say yeah. things like, you know, I want you to know that you're awesome. I want you to know that you're beautiful. I want you to know that you're strong, you know? And so she's saying all this and I'm in my mind saying, oh, this is what a teacher does. <laughs> you know, Listen, <laughs> that, that's awesome because I remember kindergarten too, but let me tell you what I remember about kindergarten. That was the first time I ever got paddled. Oh God. <laughs> my, my kindergarten teacher, Miss Kane, I didn't forget Miss Kane. Oh no. <laughs> I, I got paddled. That's all I remember. That's all I remember about kindergarten. So Wow. Um, it, <laughs> anyway. I'm, I'm wondering to, like how much did that inform <laughs> later years? <laughs> I, I don't even remember why, but I do remember that. But I had some great teachers, but that's my kindergarten memory. All right, keep keep going. Keep going. <laughs> So, Tell us about Miss Stackhouse. Miss Stackhouse was my middle school drama teacher. And Miss Stackhouse was a tall, statuesque black queen. Enjoying this episode so far? Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing on Apple, Spotify, Anchor, Google, Breaker 
Radio Public, or Pocket Casts. Now back to the show. Um, I remember if your work wasn't good, you know, she would say, this is going in file 13, <laughs> you know, whatever. And, and at the time I was like, what's file 13? <laughs> you know, and of yeah. course she was like, you know, this is the trash. You know, if you don't produce quality work in here, file 13. And she would hit the bottom of her drawer, you know, whatever, file 13. And so, you know, but she was so passionate about Black culture. So, you know, she was definitely a, a powerful woman who was about us being able to speak. To, it was drama, but, you know, it was about being able to understand how we use drama to tell our story and how we use drama to prompt change, right, in society. And so that was one of her contributions to me was that. So again, you know, Ms. Francois gives me care, you know, and Ms. Stackhouse gives me power, strength, passion, you know, for our culture, for social justice. And then the story continues, you know, into high school, right? And then in high school, I meet Ms. Katie Riveras. And Ms. Katie Riveras is a literary queen. Like, she knows her stuff, right? She has this, these volumes of books just in her head and she's talking about them like if it's just a normal part of her life, right? She's like, oh, hey everybody, how you doing today? I have to tell you about this phone call I had when we were talking about Langston Hughes and oh my goodness, Zora Neale Hurston. Y'all, I was, I was laying in my bed when I got to the page to say, you know, and so we're enthralled. We're like, yeah. what? <laughs> you know, yeah. like, oh my goodness, tell us what happened with Zora. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so she's talking about these authors, Alice Walker, you know, Toni Morrison, talking about these authors as though they are living in her house. And we are enthralled, right? Yeah. We're like, yeah. tell me more. And, you know, so she is when I decided, oh, I'm going to be an English teacher. I'm going to be a high school English teacher because I wanted to be able to replicate what she did. Yeah. And, you know, and so the, the other teachers that the three that I mentioned in the book, Ms. Douglas, Ms. Smith, both math educators. I was horrible in math as a young child. So horrible that everybody accepted it. Like in my family, everyone. Just, oh yeah, Kira, no, math, uh-uh, no. <laughs> you know, it was an accepted thing that I, I couldn't do math. I couldn't do math so much so that I could not tell the time. If there was a number involved, then my brain shut down. And entering into Miss Smith's class from another teacher who promptly failed me <laughs> and didn't help me at all. Um, but when I started Miss Smith's class, and that was in ninth grade, uh, second semester, uh, Miss Smith totally, I mean, totally transformed my thinking about numbers and math. Um, she told me, and I'll never forget it. She's, you know, I said, I, I can't do math, <laughs> you know, whatever. She said, no, um, no one has figured out how to teach you math, but you can do math. After having spent my entire life thinking I was completely incapable of doing anything that involved a number, I was tutoring students. I was helping other kids to do something 
that I mm-hmm. thought for years I couldn't do. So what she gave me was the knowledge that even though you think you can't do something, even though you might have set it into, you might have tattooed it all over your heart and soul, that don't mean you can't do it. Tell us some of the things that, that you do in order to make that happen. Sure. So definitely going back to my time in the classroom, um, and, and interestingly, <clears throat> I didn't even, when I was an educator in the classroom, I hadn't yet learned the term culturally responsive teaching, right? I hadn't let, yet learned that there was a name for what I was doing. Um, and that was also a part of the confusion too, because it was like, oh, I'm doing these great things and people think I'm doing these great things. I don't know what this is called. This is just me, you know, being an educator, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately later, um, I think maybe my either last year, it probably was my last year or two uh, in the classroom, um, I learned that terminology as well as some other terminology as well as I continue, you know, studying. Um, and what it's really about is student centered learning. It's really about student voice. It's about valuing their individual biographies and cultures and how those things inform their learning. And then Ms. Douglas, subsequently the geometry teacher, you know, showed me just that you could be elegant. You didn't have to yell. You didn't have to scream. You know, you you could be uh, a teacher who kept your class in order, tight classroom management without ever raising your voice. That's what Ms. Douglas gave me because she never raised her voice. She never yelled at her students. She never demeaned her students. When someone decided that they was going to have a day, she just quietly walked over, put their hand, put her hand on their shoulder. You, you got something going on you need to talk about, mm-hmm. you know, not, not I'm going to write you up, not, you know, oh, no, you're not going to act like that. And it's going to, you know, not, not any of that. It was always a calmness with her and elegance with her that I saw. And that is what she gifted with me with. And then finally in high school, Mr. Milton, my band teacher, who I love to this day so passionately, he was uh, our Socrates, you know, he was our question asker. He wasn't about, I'm gonna give you all the answers. He was about, I'm gonna ask you and help you to figure out what the answers are for yourself, right? And he gave us that with music, of course, um, yeah. and just absolutely, you know, a treasure to my soul. One last educator I mentioned was um, in college, my freshman year of college, and that was uh, Dr. Burns. And Dr. Burns um, gave me a fire, just built on my fire for social justice. He took writing that I thought was fire you know he took writing that I thought was oh I'm the stuff you know (laughs) you know with writing or whatever I was in honors classes you know in high school and everything and gave me my first F you know ever uh in writing (laughs) just probably read marker read you know and everything and I went up to him and said sir I'm sorry I think we have a misunderstanding (laughs) yeah and uh I'm not supposed to have this F. Mm-mm. No, I think you got the wrong one. And so yeah. he uh, definitely, he took my writing 
to levels that I didn't know existed, right? Uh, and so he really, really tore it apart and helped me to rebuild it. Um, he helped me to focus a lot less on words and vocabulary because I was like trying to get all the great vocabulary, you know, in anything I wrote mm -hmm. and on meaning and purpose uh, and on uh, social justice and change, you know, and, and really writing for purpose, right? And so he really, he gave me that. So I've been blessed. I've not had a whole lot of educators, but the few that I've had that have been quality educators transform my life. You know what I mean? They, they shape me. Yeah. yeah. Who knew that all of that happens in a classroom? Because this is what educators do. They unlock things. They show kids things that they don't even know are possible. They teach Absolutely. kids to reach heights that they don't even know exist. That's so what quality educators do. Quality educators. Quality educators do. Absolutely. Thank you, Thank you for, making, for making that point. So I know you are a staunch advocate of culturally responsive practices. Yes. I think if you set culturally responsive practices on the side, what happens is you get kids coming to school to learn a subject, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then we try to separate them as human beings and we try to say, okay, you've crossed the threshold of school, so now you're a student, right? You're, you're no longer self, you're a student now. And so you, as a student, just have to learn algebra. Right? You, as a student, just have to learn biology. But we don't work like that as human beings. We don't work where we cross a threshold and just become one part of ourselves. Mm. When we cross a threshold, we are still our whole selves, no matter what the environment is, whether that's a student crossing over into school, whether it's, you know, a mother crossing over into, you know, the library or work or wherever it is, we're still our whole selves. We don't parcel ourselves apart like that right and right. so what that means then in terms of classroom is that we need to be teaching that way as an educator culturally responsive practices come from a lot of things because nothing is ever one thing but it comes but one of the things that's i think an important feature of it is the the cognizance that this is a child that has a full life outside of this room so when I'm teaching, when I'm facilitating, when I'm fostering learning, I need to do that with a mindset that anything I say here in terms of a subject or content should be connected to whatever is their life. It should be relevant, right? Mm -hmm. So often as an educator in the classroom, and I, I like to tell educators, you know, you should find, because it's different for all of us, you should find your areas that you connect with your students on, your human person areas. I don't mean, you know, all professional coat and tie kind of thing. I mean, just as a right. human being, like, what are your areas? And for me, one of my big areas that my students connected with me on and that I them was that I was a single mom. That was a huge connection for my students and I. You, you're no longer just a teacher and I'm no longer just a student when we do that. Now we're two people who are gonna run into each other in Family Dollar on Friday, right? right. We're two <laughs> right. people who are gonna see each other in the Walmart right. line 
you know, and so that makes a big difference when we bring that human quality back into, or I should say into uh, the classroom, because then you start to knock down a lot of those barriers that come with uh, school. You know, a lot of my practice is centered on student voice, having kids to talk a lot. Um, academic discourse was a big thing in our room. I want to hear how you perceive. I want to hear what you understand. I want you guys to disagree with each other. I want you to agree. I want you to challenge. Uh, really being able to build a culture where it's okay to make mistakes. One of my saying to my students all the time was, this is the training ground. This is where you're supposed to fumble the ball. I need you to fumble the ball in here because when you fumble, every time you fumble, you're learning something. You're getting better at what you're doing because you fumbled the ball. And I want to say something. I'm very, very proud of my students um, from over the years because as things happen uh, with George Floyd and, you know, just everything that has happened in the Black community over the last mm -hmm you know, several months, it has been a blessing to my soul to see so many of my students use their voice to stand yeah. up, to protest, to march, to speak out on social media, and to do it with intellect and fire and, you know, and just be able to have that confidence to speak to what's going on right in our community yeah. and to be able to do it unabashedly right and so that's that was the homework right the homework wasn't yeah. due until five you know four five six years later thank you for helping to give them a voice i, I am wondering as you work with educators mm -hmm. on teaching them to to give their kids a voice to hear their students voice do you ever encounter any any pushback or maybe not so much pushback, but maybe um, doubt as to, you know, because I, I, I know I've heard people say, I don't want to do all this relationship building. I just want to teach. You know, do you ever encounter any of that? I'm, I'm thankful and blessed to say not much, um, not much overtly, not much directly. Um, I have certainly had situations where after we have done some sessions and training and conversations together, I've unfortunately had situations where I've walked into those classrooms and, and still seen some of the same things that I was hoping not to see. Um, mm -hmm. but even in those situations in conversing with those educators, um, I found it to be more ignorance than willfully I'm trying to, you know, be a detriment to, to these yeah. kids' lives. I think the fear for a lot of individuals has been, I don't really know how to do it, right? It's, it's not yeah. a natural thing um, for me to build relationships with kids, you know, and that, and, and that. And so that's something that we work on, right? We, I, I say forward and up front. I say it in the book as well. You know, we could give step-by-step -step processes and all of that, but this is real life. Um, yeah, it's not linear. No, it's not linear, you know, not by long shots, because it's hard to develop 
in someone a culture consciousness that they have not had for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you know, right. of their life. And now here I am telling you, <clears throat> your teaching is not going to be effective if you don't develop this culture consciousness. As long as you're working, you know, with our kids, it's a non-negotiable. You're going to have to learn how to be culture conscious. You're going to have to train yourself on something that might be uncomfortable, you know, that might not come naturally for you. And so what we do is just we practice, you know, we practice scenarios. We look at theory, but we look at practice, you know, as well. Mm -hmm. What does it look like in real mm -hmm. life? And so as a, as a specialist, when I was in that role, oftentimes I would go in and just let real life happen in the class. And then I tell the teacher, just wait for when X, Y, and Z happens. And I just want you to just kind of keep an eye on what I'm doing. Watch how I'm handling, you know, the situation. Look, look at my body. Look, listen to my voice, right? What things am I doing to, you know, disarm, right, in this situation right. so that we could get back to the learning? So it's not an easy task because it's, it's not linear at all. And you are battling with, in my mind, I like to say you're battling with someone's childhood, to be perfectly honest with you, because our yeah. childhood informs greatly who we become, you know, as adults, doesn't determine it or dictate it, but it informs it, right? And so you are battling uh, up against how someone may have lived for a large portion of their life and then saying to them, you know, but we got to do something a little different here. Because what you're doing, you're, and often what it is, is the teacher is just trying to approach the content and they're yeah. not trying to approach the student, right? And I always say, love has to precede learning. A month or two back, I, I felt a momentum of, yes, we need to, you know, use this opportunity to reform education and so on and so forth. But I fear because I'm kind of feeling some of that momentum die down a little bit as we're getting ready to actually start school now. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. just worry that we're going to default back to what we've done, that we've all said, this isn't the way that we're mm -hmm. going to default back to it instead of marching forward where it may not be comfortable, where it may be scary, where it may be unknown. Right. But instead of marching forward to say, no, we we need to change some things and we need to stand together on that. And I'm, I'm going to say this. I'm gonna, I spoke generally just now, but I want to give a specific on that. You know, standardized testing, hot topic. Right. I'm not opposed to standardized testing. I'm opposed to standardized testing be the only way that we assess students academic abilities. Mm -hmm. I'm opposed mm -hmm. to standardized testing being our God in education, being what dictates everything we do. And here's yeah. why, here's why. So we have an abiding, long-standing contradiction in education. And I know you will agree with this. I, I know most educators are gonna agree with this. So for years now, for years, we have learned about differentiated instruction. We have learned mm -hmm. about multiple intelligences. We have been charged as classroom educators that we better differentiate this learning and individualize this learning. And I don't care how many kids you have in your classroom, you better figure out how to get it done, right? Mm -hmm. You better mm -hmm. make sure that these kids get these differentiated modes of learning that speak to how they learn. 
For years, we've been doing that now. However, we keep assessing everybody the same way. The same way. We keep, we, we, so you want me to teach everybody in different ways. You want me to acknowledge in the classroom that you are a unique learner and that I need to tailor my instruction to your learning. And yet we bottleneck into this, okay, now it's time to take the, it's time to take the test, right? And so it doesn't matter. It, your, your learning mode at this point goes out the door, right? Your multiple intelligence, right. if, if your multiple intelligence is not uh, literary, all things literary, if that's not your thing, then sorry, you, you, you're not the lucky yeah. one, right? Sucks and for you. Drug. Sucks for you, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I'm not opposed to standardized assessment because I believe that there is value in standardized assessment. I believe that we use it incorrectly, particularly for the day's time that we're in right now. And if you look at the history of standardized assessment in America, I mean, from the start, of standardized assessment in America. You know what I'm yeah. getting ready to say. You I, I know where you're going. Of it. You see the, the numbers of the different races, right? You see the same pattern every time. Overwhelmingly, your white children are gonna exceed, overachieve on the standardized test. Your Latino students are gonna fall under them, but not achieving. And then your African-American students are gonna fall at the bottom egregiously, not achieving. That's yeah. a problem if that pattern has existed since the onset of standardized assessment in America. That's, at this point, at some point, decades ago, we should have said, oh, we need to reevaluate this testing business if these numbers keep coming out this way. Because the misinterpretation of those mm -hmm. numbers, the That's misinterpretation right. is that our African-American kids, our Latino kids are not intelligent, that they are uh, cognitively deficient, right? The misinterpretation mm -hmm. is that they are intellectually less than. And that story has been inculcated in us, whether you're in education or not, it's been inculcated in us over the years, over the decades, over the decades, right? We're at the bottom. Imagine what that does to our children to know that you are always at the bottom, to know that historically you've been at the bottom and you're just gonna stay there, right? Yeah. So that's the problem. That means you say, any, any academic is gonna tell you when we talk about authentic research, right? That mm -hmm. something's wrong, <laughs> something's right. wrong. If that's, if that keeps happening, you know, that way, right? And so we need to widen our assessment abilities. We need to stop putting all our eggs in the standardized assessment basket um, and start looking at diverse modes of officially assessing our students so that we're not telling our teachers one thing, but organizationally doing something different. All right, let's transition just a little bit. Okay. Talk about Talk about what keeps you up at night. <laughs> so <laughs> this is an interesting question for me. And I, I want to say why first, but then I'm going to actually answer it. Okay. So okay. it's an interesting question for me because truly in a literal sense, nothing keeps me up at night in a literal right. sense. Um, and, and I say that because one of my big things is that I am a compartmentalizer. 
and Mm -hmm. you know whatever is happening i believe in balance in our lives and i believe that to be a human being especially when you're talking about you want to be an advocate and an activist and you know and all these kind of things you you have to find a balance right you Mm -hmm. have to find a point where you do um purpose to shut off at some point so that you can regenerate and then do it again with excellence the next day so in a literal sense, you know, I would say that nothing keeps me up. However, in, in a metaphorical sense, there are several things uh, that keep me up uh, at night for sure. When I was a classroom teacher, the thing that kept me up at night was uh, planning lessons because I would, I have a whole nother dream, I have a whole nother life in my dream state <laughs> and it yeah. is fully and entirely dedicated to education. And, and so what would keep me up at night was just thinking about what are these lessons? What are these activities? What can we do? What can I do, right, as an educator to communicate this particular content, you know, whatever it was I was trying to communicate, but to communicate it in a way that was relevant, responsive, engaging, fun, right? And mm-hmm. so I'm constantly, when I was in the classroom, constantly just dreaming up these, you know, lessons and the activities and things like that. So that's definitely uh, something. Another thing that keeps me up at night is I have hundreds of books inside of me. And so I'm always thinking about, you know, the next book and what I want to write and and that kind of thing. And so that's something that's always kind of sitting down in my head in the background. You are the lit lady. Yes. So let's talk about recommended books and what you're reading right now. What do you have for us? Sure. So the book actually... have some of my books with me. I know the audience okay. can't see, but, <laughs> but um, one of the books that I'm reading now, and when I say reading, I mean reading slowly because I'm swamped with homework, but one of the fiction books that I'm reading now is called Some Sing, Some Cry, um, and so this is a book that uh, deals with, it definitely addresses African-American culture, but it's about how we cope with things, um, and so it tells the story of a family of black women who go through some things over time and it just talks about how we cope so some saying some cry so this is this is one that i'm currently reading now this is one that i just got finished reading and i am recommending to everyone i know it is called children of actually children of virtue and vengeance this is the second one i thought i picked up the first one which is called children of blood and bone okay and it is Excellent. I mean, excellently written. It is, um, if I could describe it, I would say it's like Harry Potter meets Avatar meets Roots meets, you know, meets, uh, what's, what's the other one that we all, that we all like, that we all went to the movie. Oh, Black Panther. Black Panther meets Black, Black Panther. Panther, right? Yeah. And so this takes like all of those and meshes it together in a way I have never seen done before. And so it is, it is awesome. So the first one is Children of Blood and Bone. That's the one I'm talking about. This is the second one that I haven't read yet, Children of Virtue and Vengeance, but they are powerful page turner books. I mean, just page turner. 
I know our listeners can't see it, but those are hard cover books. So she is a real reader. These are not paperback <laughs> books, y'all. She, this is, she is a real reader. That means she's keeping these books. That's correct. Right? So, so that means you can't... You if can't borrow. If she lets you borrow. Oh, that she just said. You, you can't, can't borrow. borrow. <laughs> get your own. You better get your own. Get your own book. So, <laughs> yep. So definitely there's that. And then on the... Uh, well, and then obviously... My book, The Seven Traits of Talented Teachers. So I am actually um, going through it again and reading it from a reader perspective, right? Because I've Ah. seen it from a writer perspective, but I want to read it from a reader perspective um, so that I can get a sense of where I want to go next um, with it. And so definitely um, digging into this again. On a nonfiction tip, I'm reading, and I'm going to show you three books at one time, but on a nonfiction tip, um, so I'm just about done with this, and this is actually a book I've been reading for years, so this is not like a one sit down kind of thing, but this book is so very important um, to me, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Um, This is a powerful, powerful read um, written a, a while back, but has some strong implications for now in terms of Uh, how we position ourselves with students. A lot of what I believed in, I was given this book by another educator, again, some years ago, because she was like, you know what? This is you. This is who you are. This is how you teach. And so Mm -hmm. in reading it, I was like, oh my goodness. It's always fascinating to me when I read something and I find like a name for something, you know, that I do. Um, And so this book was definitely one of those books for me, um, because as an educator myself, I've one of my, a piece of my philosophy is, you know, I don't envision educator above student. I envision us all in in the class together as learners together. Mm -hmm. We are taking this learning journey together um, and learning from each other. And I may be an expert in some things, but you students are expert in some other things and you're going to teach me as much as I teach you. Um, kind of thing. And so this book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, definitely um, speaks to that. And then for all this homework that I have right now, I'm on. So if there's anybody out there who you're working on your doctor's degree, oh my God. Uh, but one is called the Coding <laughs> Manual for Qualitative Researchers. And so this book is it's really good for helping you to learn the coding processes um, that goes along with it. And then here's one that we all know and love, the APA Manual. Um, which yeah. has become my best friend. In case you didn't know, yeah. there is a new version out now. We all have been hanging on to the sixth edition for a while. This is the seventh edition now. And so this sleeps with me at night. So, so those are my book recommendations. All right. Let's talk about music. This is one of my favorite parts. What are you listening to right now? So I am an extreme music lover. Like... I love music and music was a huge part of uh, actually my classroom. Um, I played music as students entered the classroom. I played music mm-hmm. as students exited the classroom. And so, uh, and just even in my personal private life, I am always listening to music prior to us starting this interview. I was listening to music. And so music yeah. is really big in my life. What I'm listening to really depends on what I'm trying to accomplish. Um, And so my music is always tied to kind of what I'm doing, what feeling I want to have. Right now, and I I mentioned this, um, I recently, um, actually on Mother's Day, I learned about Gregory Porter, who I had never heard of before. 
and my dad on Facebook uh, sent a song called Mother Song uh, to me on Facebook. And quiet is kept. One of the best gifts anybody can give me is a song. And I hate to say that out loud because it's like, oh, I don't have to buy or anything. But, but, <laughs> but, but, but one of the best gifts someone can give to me is absolutely music, is a song. And when I heard this song called Mother's Song on Mother's Day, my entire day was made. I mean, my entire day. It is a beautiful, beautiful song. Um, and so Gregory Porter, uh, I would say my favorites right now from him are Mother's Song, um, Painted on Canvas, and mm-hmm. Be Good. Uh, and Be Good probably right now is ranking as my favorite uh, song right now. So Gregory okay. Porter, I would definitely say check him out. Other, other music that I listen to, because I have a wide variety of music, I listen to just about every genre that exists. Um, okay. But I listen to, so I'm a Pandora listener. I listen to Spa Radio. Um, so if anybody is a Pandora listener and you've been looking for something to help you to find your calm, help you to find your balance, your center yeah, yourself, yeah. Um, Spa Radio is really good for that. I do a lot of meditation with that. A song that um, actually my editor gifted to me is called The Blessing, and it's on YouTube, and I would say check it out. It is, uh, it's a gospel song, um, and I mean, it's one of the most beautiful songs I have ever heard, and so uh, very, very powerful, speaks to God blessing us, not just now, but blessing us for our generations to come, our children and our children's children and our children's children, children. And, and I just love it. Um, and so that is also a good one. And then two others, Nora Jones radio. I love all things Nora Jones and music that centers around that. And then Island reggae. I love Island music. So yeah. Island music is my jam. I can listen to it all day long. Um, definitely if I'm cleaning the house, or, you know, try to move and get some things done. Island reggae, that's my go-to <laughs> on that. So, so those are my music recommendations. Okay. Okay. My nephew asked a question yesterday. I just want to see what you think. His question was if we had a versus and it was Michael Jackson versus Bob Marley. What you think? What a compromising position you put me in. What do you think? What do you think? I'm not going to take the easy road and say both. I'm going to go ahead and (laughs) I'm going to choose one. Oh, this is tough, but I'm going to go by Marley. Um, I'm going to go by Marley. So Bob, Michael, obviously, you know, you already know, I don't have to say it. Right. But, but Bob Marley, in fact, when we, um, were talking before the interview, I actually mentioned to you that one of my favorite quotes um, comes from Bob Marley. Um, and mm-hmm. it is that my mm-hmm. fear is my only courage. Yeah. And that quote is so intently meaningful because, you know, in life we come across things that scare us, right? We come across mm-hmm. things that we fear. Um, and I just purpose to live that if something scares me to do it, that's, that's just, that's, that's my way of thinking. I'm afraid of it. Okay. That means I have to do it, you know, whatever. And so I would definitely say Bob Marley because he tapped into that. I'm a very spiritual person. And so Mm -hmm. he taps into that spirit 
uh, person in me. Yeah. You know, Mike taps into my, let's get it. Let's go. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. but, but um, I'm not a party person. And so I, I would have to say for me, Bob Marley, because I am much more of a spiritual and, you know, just thinking, I like to think about things, you know, and how the world is and what role we play in it. And that's, that's what his music is about. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. All right. This next segment is called Rapid Fire. I'm going to ask you five just random questions. And and today they're going to be extra random because usually I kind of pick out five questions that I think may vibe with my guest. I, I didn't do that today. So oh, wow. I, know, I, know, I know the first two I'm going to ask because they're my, my favorite two questions to ask. The last three, I'm not sure what direction we're going to go in. Oh, are my. you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> this this question I ask all of our guests. Okay. If you could have a superpower, what would it be and why? I will want to. <laughs> Everybody who knows me is going to laugh at this because they're going to know it's true. I would want to be a rapid reader. <laughs> okay. So I, I would want that as a superpower because knowledge and wisdom, that's, that's my jam. I, I, I love to learn. Mm -hmm. In fact, this ring that I wear here, it has wisdom written on it. Um, and so I love to learn. I love to gain perspective on things, but there is not enough time in the day. And I, I'm a bibliophile kind of thing. I, I have thousands of books. I have bookshelves all over my home. Um, and so I just wish I could read it all. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, like it, if I had a superpower, it, because of course, once you read, and you learn, imagine if I could read like a hundred books a day, everything I would know and the wisdom that I would have, and then everything else could be done. You know, like yeah, you read, yeah. you could get money, you get, you know, That's all right. of that, That's right. right? So That's right. I would want that because um, from that, I could become an expert in everything, right? So okay. that would be it. Okay, good stuff, good stuff. All right, question number two. Okay. Describe the color yellow to a blind person. Oh, okay. <laughs> yellow. Yellow is mellow. It is smooth. It is calm. It is sunshine. It is gold sparkle. It is a feeling of warmth. It is shining from the inside. It is moving about darting to and fro in our minds. It is understanding time. It is enrichment. It is shine. That is yellow. Wow. I'm never asking anybody else that question again. That question is retired. Oh, Mic okay. drop. That question is retired. That one is done. I just, I literally just drew a line through it. I'm like, I'm not asking that question anymore. That one is done. Mic drop. Okay. Yellow. Bam. Yellow. I mean, I'm like, I'm like, dang. Yellow. I can, I can see it. I'm glad. I'm glad. That's good. Thank All you. Right. Question number three. Okay. Who is your favorite cartoon character and why? Wonder Woman. Just had this conversation the other day. Um, Wonder Woman. It it is uh, for me. She is so she's who who imprinted on me <laughs> when I was young. 
is in terms of superheroes. Um, mm-hmm. And I had her costumes throughout childhood. And okay. when I became a mother uh, with my kids and we did, uh, this was back in the day when people had uh, the voicemail boxes, whatever we used to call them or whatever. And when we set up our message, uh, we set up our message to say, hey, this is Wonder Woman. And the kids, hey, this is Batman. Hey, this is Superman, you know, whatever. And so definitely for her, um, you know, I, she represented power for me, obviously, and strength in, in womanhood, you know, as a child. But I think also there's a part in that about truth because you know she had her lasso of truth so there's a part in there about truth and integrity um and those are important to me truth honesty integrity that's something that i I definitely give big props to my father my grandfather um for because i've only ever known them to be honest and upright men and that's how they function so much so that when i encountered dishonesty in life it was like what is that why are they lying (laughs) you know whatever that kind of thing so um i would definitely yeah say wonder woman she's still my girl i know we got like other options and everything that have come across (laughs) the years but she she's gonna have to be my go-to i'm loyal (laughs) okay okay all right here we go question number four okay what is your favorite movie quote oh my favorite movie quote i'm gonna have to (laughs) I'm going to have to go with whatever my son said in just mercy. <laughs> so okay. he said, he said something like, that's my dad, sir. <laughs> you know, and then he did some yelling and stuff. So whatever he said in that movie, uh, in the court scene, my son, <laughs> that's going to, that's my favorite quote <laughs> right, All right now. So, so y'all got that. Her son <laughs> was, was cast in just mercy. So. All right, good. All right. Question number five. Question number five. If your plane was about to crash, who would you want sitting next to you? Nobody I love. (laughs) No one I love. Let me be very clear about that. (laughs) Good answer. Excellent. Excellent answer. People would be like, wait a minute. She put me in the plane next to Excellent answer. I would Zeus out. Hey, you know, I love you guys. I don't want y'all on this plane. <laughs> okay, good, good. Man, that's awesome. All right. Now, this last segment is called You Didn't Ask. You Didn't Ask. What unsolicited advice would you like to share for this segment? Okay, so <clears throat> I have so much but I'm just going to cover four bullet points. Okay. All right. (laughs) So my first piece of advice, um, and this this is just general, this is out to anyone. This applies to anyone. You don't have to be in education. Okay. But you can be. Um, And it is do one thing, do it well, and then do the next thing. Um, and, and, And that comes from, you know, we overwhelm ourselves a lot with trying to, it, it could be, I have to finish this class. It could be, mm-hmm. I have to, you know, finish this project, whatever it is, but because it has so many parts and pieces to it and there's everything we wind up overwhelming ourselves and not doing anything. Right. And mm-hmm. so one thing that I try to live by, especially because I have always a million things going on 
is just do one thing. Whatever, if I have a homework assignment and it has 10 parts to it, I try, okay, I did, I read the overview, but now there's only one thing and it is whatever the first part of this assignment is that I'm going to mm -hmm. do. And then focus all my energy intently on that, do it well. Nothing else exists outside of that. But once it's done, then do the next thing. And that's how we get things done. That, that's, okay. that's how you accomplish things is by doing one thing and not stop trying to do the most. So that's okay. one piece. Okay. Um, that's, a, that's another uh, measurement that Black people use, doing the most. Do the most. <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> doing the most. Okay. All right. Next one. All right. And this is, um, this is something I've, I've said for a, a long time. Um, perhaps it'll go on my tombstone. I don't know. But ego interrupts progress. Okay. Um, ego interrupts progress. Let's not, and it, this is more so for us in education. Um, you know, we get titles. We get degrees. We get all of that, right? Um, and it can, if we don't tame it, it can get in the way of the progress that we are trying to accomplish. I think when we need to get stuff done for kids, we need to put our titles on the side and rely upon people's expertise, people's gifts, people's talents. That may not line up with the title that they have today. Maybe it won't line up with them in title until 10 years from now. But if someone, has an, someone on the team has an ability to do something, and it's a instrumental part of what we need done. We need to make room for people to do that and not say, oh, because I'm the fill in the blank, I'm the person, you know, who's going to mm -hmm. do X, Y, and Z. So I think, uh, unfortunately, I see it, it came, that quote came to me because I see it so much in, in education and what we do. A lot of times we block people from doing what they can do because our title gets in the way. So um, ego interrupts progress. So the advice would be don't let your ego uh, interrupt progress. The next okay. one is this one. I'm, I'm going to stay short, very brief on this one. Okay. This is me speaking, but I'm speaking behalf of all, of all high school educators. Okay. Parents, we still need you. We, we need our parents of high school educators to be more involved. Um, and what's going on in your children's lives. We know, because the study shows it, the research shows it, that parents tend to be heavily involved in children's elementary years, and then it tapers off as kids get older. But the reality is that we need you in high school as well. We need to not have 200 students and send out 200 emails and only get 10 back. Um, we, yeah. we need parents to be involved because you are an instrumental role in how successful your child will be with us. So teachers are the greatest in-school factor for student success, but outside of school in their external lives, parents, you play a huge role. And so on behalf of uh, all educators, I would say advice would be parents, we need you to, to, be, to be there for your kids to talk to us, yes. to partner with us. And then the last one is, and I said this earlier, but it bears repeating. <clears throat> Love should always precede learning, always. 
if we want learning to authentically occur, if we want it to be sustainable, if we want it to stick, then it has to start with relationships. <clears throat> and so to our teachers, you know, I definitely say, let's be purposeful about establishing relationships with our kids, especially as we're going and starting school, you know, and everything now. Let's be purposeful to take the time out to understand where they are and who they are so that we can reach their their minds. We got to go through their hearts, you know, to get there. So that would be my last piece of unsolicited advice. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. You didn't ask, but there it is. Akira LeBlanc, you have blessed my soul today. Woo! Thank you once again for joining us this week on The Network. I hope you are refreshed in that conversation about education. I know many of our listeners have school-age kids of their own, so hopefully you enjoyed that. For more information on Akira, information about where you can find her book, The Seven Traits of Talented Teachers, Check the show notes. You can find her website there. You can also find her Facebook pages. Then get your calendars out. See if it's cleared this Saturday, September 26th at 530. Akira is hosting the Ancestors of Pedagogical Greatness, a panel. You definitely want to check that out. Also, check us out on Instagram and Facebook. The underscore network underscore podcast on Instagram. The network with Michael Prejean on Facebook. Then I need all of you to mosey on over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. Many thanks in advance or simply like, share, retweet, tell a friend about the show. Anything you do, every kind gesture moves us in the right direction. Now, be sure to tune in next week. I'm bringing you episode 15 with Roderick V. Hinton Esquire of Dopahalics.com. We are going to make America dope again. Be sure to subscribe to the network. You may need it.